number 10 for Brendan Taylor. Australian captain, we're talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is, his 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it, Deep Midwigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates Eric Cole, he cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the DNet Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Well, I don't need to introduce myself because Mr. Ross Brownlee-Walker, who very kindly does these incredibly good intros and voiceovers, did that for me. So great to be with you. Great to have you on the podcast. And if you're listening for the first time, there are some fantastic interviews that you can listen to if you subscribe to the podcast. And all you do is you go to your preferred podcast app, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, and Google. And uh, you can subscribe to the Dean at Stumps podcast. And you can listen to some fantastic interviews. Uh, Many, many great names there including somebody who we've just recently lost, and uh, that person, of course, being Dean Jones. So let us just take a a little bit of time out to reflect and to remember not only one of Australia's pioneers, or quite possibly the pioneer of one-day international cricket, Dean Jones. He was a superb batsman, uh, what I think made him so very special back in the 1980s, and early 1990s was his very quick footwork. So he was nimble. He was a big man, but he was very nimble. So he got to the pitch of the ball very quickly when the spinners were bowling. Loved to target the mid-on, mid-wicket area. Rotated the strike beautifully. And he was outstanding in the field as well. And after he retired for a second time in 1994, we then started to see him do quite a bit of commentary. And he became much loved, especially in the subcontinent, where a lot of the viewers appreciated Dino's honest and at times brutal opinion. If a cricketer was playing well, he got praised, and if he wasn't playing well, you certainly knew all about it. So rest in peace, Dean Jones. Thank you very much for the entertainment on the field and for the memories off the field. Right now, a lot of people have been giving me a bit of feedback regarding an interview that I played or did a couple of months ago, probably around about May, give or take. In fact, it would have been in April. And uh, they didn't like the fact that it was broken up into three parts, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Thank you for the constructive criticism. Thank you for the feedback, because it certainly makes it, it's, it makes me know that people are, are actually listening to the podcast. So very grateful. And this is why I decided to once again catch up with uh, now much-loved commentator and former Zimbabwe Sima Mpumalelo Mbangwa. Of course, we all know him as Pami. And... Uh, one of the first things he explained to me was how he actually got the name Pomi Mbangwa, the nickname that he's uh, become so very popular with over the last 20-odd years, and how e- easy was it for some people to get the name Mpomelelo to simply roll off the tongue. Hey, hey, Dino. Um, I don't know if it rolls off everybody's tongue. <laughs> it doesn't quite, and I guess that's why it is the name uh, Pom and Pommy and Palmster and, and all of that. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose, like if I, as far as I can think back, and I know it, there are many different reincarnations of, of why, of the reasons why I kind of um, uh, have the nickname. And as far as I can remember, 
I'd go back to playing cricket with um, Gavin Rennian. And that's when we were sort of 13 and 14 years old. Um, and I remember him sort of, and, and he probably doesn't remember this actually because it it's inconsequential to him. It was just kind of him trying to, to figure out a way. Um, for many of the guys to say Mpumelelo was not simple, was not easy. Uh, and in trying to say it, that's what came out. So some guys would say Mpumelelo as an MPO instead of MPU. Yes, yes. And I think he was one of those who would say Mpumelelo. <laughs> and so he'd say, well, actually, I can just go Pom. Is that okay, you know? <laughs> And it didn't bother me one way or the other, to be honest, at, uh, at the time particularly. Um, and I was comfortable because everybody knew what my name was. So, um, yeah, my mates would call me that. And the only way you'd get to know that my nickname was Palm, or which later went on to Palmy, was if you were kind of in that inner sanctum of guys that played cricket with and against um, and would know that my name, Pumelilo, would be shortened uh, by some Tupam. That's very... Uh, as in school, yeah. uh, many went by their surname, didn't they? So yes. uh, many would have called me Mpangwa anyway. So, you know, so some would call me Pam, some uh, would call me Mpangwa. Uh, and it didn't matter whichever one. So anything goes, really. Anything goes. Yeah, and then and then as time went on, so from being thirteen and forty um, to going through the ranks in school, I was known by my by my surname, not my first name. Uh, most people would call me Mbama. So if you went to to Milton uh, Milton High School and and you spoke of Palm or Palmy. Now, those who went with me then would know that because they would have heard people call me that, right, um, on the television or whilst they played cricket for Zimbabwe or, or you know, uh, as time has gone on. Yeah. But each time I meet anybody that I went to school with, they don't really call me Palm. They might, it might come out every now and again, but they would call me by my surname. You know, they'd call me Mbangwa and I'd call them. And I suppose these things evolve, don't they? So um, I spent a little bit of time in England and being a bit of a chameleon then, um, I, in trying to fit in, started to speak like the guys over there, <laughs> guys all around me. So um, instead of the 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 beautiful Zimbabwean, uh, accent or fully Zimbabwean accent, it'd be interspersed with some English pronunciations of things. And that was the time when I, I, I went towards sort of playing for, for men's teams. So Matabela and then Zimbabwe, uh, Zim, Zim A or B or whatever it was called at the time. And, um, latterly Zim, uh, Zimbabwe national side. And the guys there wouldn't have had any contact or any knowledge of me as a 13 and 14 year old uh, with regard to what my name or nickname was, right? So 
for, from, from them or from their point of view, the way I spoke kind of said, well, he speaks like a pommy, right? So some guys would say that, and that's why. And, right. and that's why some of them would say that, right? And so that was that, which uh, the accent obviously faded, uh, you know, after a short while back in Zim and uh, back with who my people are, which is Zimbabweans and where I live, right? Yeah. Um, and and despite despite that, it kind of stuck and evolved from palm to palmy to palmster. I was called Lelo for a, a, a while by the Matland guys because that was that's the end of my name. Yeah. You know, and many people who are called Bumelelo are called Lelo. Um, that you'll have some people who will still call me that. So Charles Coventry. Um, uh, Mark Vermeulen, um, trying to think who else. There were particular guys. Uh, Kenny Mercury, who briefly came to my um, I'll think of somebody else. Uh, Clement Mahachi. Oh, yes. there, there was a particular group of guys who would call me Lelo rather than Pommy or Pom. Um, and so, as I say, the nickname kind of evolves, and it, and you are many different names and different people to different guys and girls that you meet as you go along because you do different things together or you do things differently together. So, yeah. Otherwise, uh, in essence, Pumelelo is what my mother and my father would call. <laughs> And especially, I'm sure, when you used to step out of line as a kid, uh, there'd be no endearments there or nicknames there. Uh, I remember somebody also calling you pomegranate, and you always used to say, "As long as I'm the, as long as I, what did you used to say? As long as I'm the pulp and not the juice, or vice versa." Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was John, John Rainey. That's so funny that it's it's uh, funny that it is. Uh, uh, Gavin who went with pop, but John Rainey from the time. I first met him, would say pomegranate, and he still does today, actually. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So when when did you actually start to realize that, you know what, there's many other things I'm sure I could do if I put my hand to it, but I want to follow my dream of becoming a cricketer. So, you know, when you started to make inroads in the Matabeleland team and, and the A side and then the national side, there were only a very few bunch of professional cricketers in Zimbabwe, when did you decide, I don't want to be behind a desk, I don't want to be a salesman or anything like that. I want to be running in and bowling over after over, playing for my country. Um, so I don't think in my mind um, I worked out that you could be many of those things, uh, which is a pity, a great pity, actually, because these days... Uh, I'd um, say to youngsters that you can be more than one thing. But when I was probably about 14 years old is when I decided I wanted to be a cricketer because um, it, it appealed to me. I enjoyed the sport. But I also then saw that there were guys who did used to play cricket as, as a sport professionally, not in Zimbabwe, uh, in in England mainly, and I mean at that time is 
uh, is when I suppose the the fables of the great West Indian team were at their height because they'd just come to an end. Do you, do you know what I mean? So yeah, they yeah. they'd just finished, and 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 the West Indies were still a force to be reckoned with. Oh yes, but were fading, and so the stories get louder and louder of the likes of Marshall and Holding and um, Garner and Croft and Roberts and Richards and um, Greenwich and Haynes and, and all of them, you know. So they 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 kind of took on this status that was, like, unbelievable. So, yeah, I, I watched a few of those on tapes. It was In fact, there was this... BBC tape that I, I watched courtesy of Ian Kemp, who was a, a master, a housemaster at Milton. And I used to watch this. I don't, I really don't know how many times I've watched it. Subsequently, Ian, um, unfortunately, has, has passed on. God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, and I used to go to the housemaster's rooms to watch this tape. Um, and he, he subsequently had this videotape, you know, a VHS. Yeah. And I would watch it, and it had that BBC music on it. Um, you, you know, the one... Dun, 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 when the game... When it's my ringtone. The, it's actually my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would watch that over and over. And in those tapes were the various names that I spoke about. And, of course, there were both them and, and the like, and, and Border, and, and all of them. But... Um, the ones that captivated me most were the West Indies. And, and so running in and bowling was mainly due to watching those West Indian guys and wanting to do it professionally was round about then 14, 15. That's when I really thought, right, I, I want to be a cricketer. And all else kind of paled into insignificance. And I thought this is, this has to be the thing. At that time, you can't tell a 14 year old that, um, you know, 20 years from now, you physically will not be able to play cricket for a living because, you you know, you, your age comes to that time and uh, you've got to do something else and get a proper job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, that's when it happened. That's what I wanted to do. What were some of the highlights in your international career? You made your debut against your test debut against Pakistan in 1996, and uh, if I remember correctly, your first wicket it was a top order. Was it Said Anwar? I think who you got out, if I remember correctly. No, um, I, I got out Ijaz Ahmed. I got him out caught behind. That's right. I'll never forget it, and I, I often refer to it now when I watch somebody else get a, a first wicket. The feeling is. And I describe it as, as walking or running on air. It's like there's a mattress beneath you and you can't feel the bumps of the ground. That's, that's genuinely how I describe it. It's like, it's like you're floating, you know? Yeah. You're running and everything, but it's, it feels like you're floating. And I think the reason for that feeling is because it's a, a, a goal you set and, and then when you achieve it, it's a feeling of accomplishment and, and somewhat fulfillment, you know, for for that kind of split second that it happens, it's unbelievable. And then when it has happened and everyone's come and patted you on the back, shaking your hand, high fives, whatever it is, hugs, whatever it was at, at the time, 
you then just kind of uh, are in this uh, dwell, really, uh, where you just, wow, a Cheshire cat sort of scenario, smiling and going all over the place. Yeah, so yeah, I remember that fondly and I remember it well. I don't think I'll ever forget it. I, I don't know if others feel the same way. I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a career that lasted uh, 10 years or hundreds of games like some do these days. Uh, and perhaps those that have a career like that don't remember, but I'd, I'd argue that they remember their first one. They remember when they were trying to get there and when they did and finally sort of broke through with wicket number one. So, so for me, yeah, a very special place in my heart. And there is no further highlight that could kind of surpass that. Um, perhaps that being a problem in itself, because uh, these days I tell youngsters who have come across that uh, it's not the getting there that you should aim at. When you get there is when you should reset the goals and intend to be there and maintain a high level of performance and success for a long period of time, which yeah, we watch quite a lot do. But not everybody goes on, and the goal should be to go on. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you remember who the first? I, I remember listening to an in, well, Alan Donald actually telling me when I personally interviewed him, interviewed him when he got to his three hundredth Test wicket, obviously, which was very special in a bowler's career. Um, mm. He he automatically looked around for his very best friend and captain, Hansi Cronier, who at the time was still alive, but you know no longer playing. So the first man to embrace him was Makai Antini, who I think was at Madon. So do you remember who the first person was to give you the high five, the hug, and the handshake when you got your first test wicket? Not at all. <laughs> I, I do not remember it at all. I, so I remember, so right now as I'm talking to you, I remember um, the Nick. I, I, so I can replay what happened. I can replay Ijaz Ahmed with that uh, particular and, and idiosyncratic stance that he had and set up where he banged the ground like he was chopping wood and then he'd have his bat go up behind him and sort of stand upright, which wasn't the norm then, so it looked out of place. These days, people set up and they stand and wait and they, it just looks like, oh, he does that and he does that. And it's kind of more acceptable. But back then, uh, we're talking 1996. So, so you know, the, the, the manual was kind of the way to go. So if anyone did anything that was different to that, they looked a bit odd. So, so, um, so, so, so Ijaz Ahmed, with the way that he stood, you know, everybody noticed because it was different to everyone else. And then running up and, and, and thinking you've got to get the ball pitched up, and it swung, I swung it around those days. Um, and, yeah, gone for the big booming drive, nicked, good length ball, nicked into the gloves of Andrew Flower, who had to move a bit to his right to take it in front of first slip, who was uh, Alistair Campbell, I yeah. think, was a, a slip. Yeah, I think Dave would have been second slip with his... Uh, short fingers. I can't remember who else was in, in the slip corner, but yeah. And then in, in terms of who got to me for, I just remember jumping up and down in, in, in no coordinated way, just hysteria, really. And that, that was it. And, and bearing in mind that um, Ijaz batted three, I think he did. Uh, uh, Said Anwar, Amir Sahel, 
Ijaz Ahmed. I can't remember who walked in at uh, four. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's it. I don't remember who got to me. I don't remember who hugged me. I don't remember if anyone hugged me. I don't remember if anyone high-fived me or shook my hand. I, I just assume. And I, I even don't have a tape of that. I don't have any recording of it. So, you know, I don't have evidence. It's just in plays and replays in my mind. In the hard drive, as I always like to say. In the hard Correct, drive. Correct, yeah. <laughs> Pommy, one thing that I know that, you know, you've sort of, you just love talking about the game, things such as quota systems and that, I know that you're not fond of it because, you know, we love the game of cricket. And that's what I think what makes a band of us so special is we just love the game of cricket. But were there times where perhaps you felt that, you know, I, at times I just feel a bit like a spare wheel. I feel like I've made this team purely because of the fact that Zimbabwe cricket or ZCU, as they were then known as, had to have a certain amount of players of, of colour in. And then there's the flip side where you could say, you know, I've bowled my heart out. I really have. And yet I have not been selected. Yes, I went through a bit of a dip, but that's that's behind me now. I've been the, the pick of the bowlers for some time now, and yet there's another bowler who gets being uh, picked over me. Have you ever had or did you ever have any of those conflicting emotions? Uh, with regard to... To quota players and picking players because they were black or because there was a need for black representation. I really don't think that started in earnest until probably about, or when I say that started, I don't think that was a subject until probably about the year 2000. And this is from my own memory. Um, and and by that, I mean, it wasn't spoken about and it wasn't advanced as a necessity. So prior to that, I mean, I remember that I got into the side um, at a time. So I didn't, in my first test match, I didn't play with Heath Streak. Now, Heath Streak would have been in the team because he was Zimbabwe's best bowler. Um, and... Around that time was kind of towards the end for Edo Brandes, but when fit, he'd generally get into the team. Um, I'm trying to think. Of, so yeah, my great mate Henry Ologa. Yeah. When fit, generally he'd get into the team. So there, I've named three fast bowlers who would have been um, Zimbabwe's attack. And so when I got my goal. I think all three of those guys were injured, actually, at that time. For that tour to Pakistan, I remember all three of those guys unable to play. Um, so that's that's why I got in the team, not because I was a black guy. I was just the next guy in line. Absolutely. And I remember getting... I remember that um, when that squad was selected, there were four young guys who, who were picked at, at the same time. Um Gavin Rennie, as a batsman, came on that tour. Um, Everton Matambanazo came on that tour as well. Um, Gary Brent came on that tour and myself. So we were the four, and we're all the same age and age group, um, having gone through school cricket and Zim cricket, Zim schools cricket and, and all that. And there were all these injuries that happened at the same time. And so now they were looking for 
who was it who was next and so naturally you go into your system of Matabeleland, Mashonaland and country districts and whoever and you've got to figure out who are the bowlers who are doing decently enough and doing the best in order to be selected as the guys who are next in line and that's that was it there was no in my mind there certainly was no okay we'll leave out those and we'll go with these Brian Strang was also on that tour yes. and he was in that squad and and was and i think became senior bowler because he is older than all of us um guy whittle as an all-rounder and also that the makeup of of that squad had all those guys and us as youngsters coming in so my my debut um i remember that we we got absolutely trounced actually in in a match at Shekhapura which was the first match and the test match i played in was the second test match um was him akram smashed we were actually we were playing okay in that game strang got some wickets a uh, paul uh, paul strang leg spinner got some wickets and had them on the ropes sort of thing and at seven down or six down then sakle mustak i think must have got 70 or 80 and uh well, i can't remember if it was sakle mustak or mustak ah, it, it, it was sakle mustak yes it was but yeah also was a macram then got 150 so we went from a position of nearly bowling them out to them getting 520 and then um we ended up i think we ended up losing the game i can't remember if we drew or lost the game we might have lost it we probably did lose the game um and then and then sort of went from there and team the team had to change and it changed and that's when i made my debut in faisalabad so yeah with regard to quotas and this and that yeah, that gen- genuinely i i don't think so not at that time not in in the mid 90s as we as we then moved along and went further forward um there were murmurs around in the system of those who are watching from the outside who say hold on the players were not getting a goal we think such and such can get a goal if the teams aren't going so well all the time how come the same blokes play yeah, these guys who are doing well why don't they get a goal and that's when things started changing and as i say i think that was around 2000 that started and with regard to there are other guys who play and other guys who don't or who play in in your place you feel are oh, bold well that's always the case you know and these days i take a philosophical view to it it's difficult at the time when you're playing because it's a personal thing you you're thinking i should play and that's the mindset of a guy who's a, a sportsman you're the best you can be and therefore you feel you're better than the next guy unfortunately it's the next person who has to choose that so whoever it is who's selector um whoever it is who is captain who then feel they have to choose who plays in their side whatever their view and why it is that way we can go into 10,000 things and 10,000 different things why it shouldn't be that way and it should be the way you think about it or the way you saw it at the time but that to me that's just uh conjecture and really a waste of time um what i did do is when i got the chance to do as well as i can play as hard as i can and uh absolutely no regrets in that regard uh would i change it uh, i would love to have played a whole lot more i'd have loved to got quite a lot more chances 
but such is the way the cookie crumbles and such is life. And I, I certainly remember feeling very disappointed when Zimbabwe toured New Zealand early 1998, if you remember. You guys left in 97, went to Sri Lanka where you played two test matches and a couple of one days. Um, mm. In fact, actually, I want to talk a bit about that uh, second test match in Sri Lanka, a lovely story that you uh, told me many, many years ago when Andy Flower was approaching a, an incredibly difficult Test 100 to try and manufacture a win. Some people felt Zimbabwe should actually have won that Test match, but that there was a bit of dodgy umpiring. But, of course, you know, that was then. Um, and you were facing Butaya Murulithran, and there was a very big appeal for a catch and the umpire said, not out. And Andy Flower came across to you and said, Pommy, that was a very good stand. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think he knew at the time. I, I remember I've told this story many times and I reminded of him. Not, I reminded it to, um, to him not too long ago, actually. We worked together um, during the Under-19 World Cup recently gone. And yeah, he's having a go at, at commentary, and so I got to work with him and reminisce on some of these stories. Um, <laughs> I remember that test match because uh, of so many things that happened. Um, with regard to the hundred, he was on ninety-one. I remember it so well too. He was on ninety-one when I when I walked out, and he walked up to me and he said, "Hey, Ponster." I said, "Yes, Andrew." I was gibbering uh, wreck, obviously, because four years this bloke is nearly nearly got to 100 and I've got this job of trying to stay with him and it's ripping, spinning like a top, you know. So, Mutaya Murali didn't matter who else was bowling. I think Jayanta Silva was um, the other spinner, but they also used uh, Sanat Jayasurya, who I was had to face at the time. He was in a spell with, with Mutaya Murali Anyway, he said to me, uh, Andrew said, oh, hey, Palmster, I'm, I'm going to trust you, okay? We'll just run everything. I was just like, <laughs> didn't answer back. He just like looked at him thinking, are you mad or stupid? Which one? Like, do you want a hundred, you know? And anyway, I went to face and I think it was my first ball. It might have been my second. I don't know. But you can, as you can imagine, um, short legs, silly point, legs slip, slip, gully, everything, everybody all around me. And a whole lot of talking, a whole lot of talking. And Mutamurilidiran ran up, bowled it. I lunged forward, as the number 11 does. And I think it went kind of straight off, pad, glove, straight into the glove, into the hands of, of Silly Point, who just went absolutely mad. They all went up. And I just stood there, shook my head, and, you know, waited expectantly, expecting the finger to go up. It didn't. And gardened a little bit, went back in, you know, kicked away another one or something. And at the end of the over, Andy came across and he said, you're okay, right? And I said, yeah, but I hit that one. <laughs> oh, really? He said, yeah. I came right off my glove. I was like, I'm punching it, you know. Uh, not in not in those words, obviously. It's a few years ago, so I can't remember the word. And so I said, oh, well, then, uh, good stand, you know. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> and he reiterated that he, like, I'm just going to take the runs, okay? Anyhow, he took the runs, and as you can imagine, uh, he was comfortable with getting a single, so whoever bowled at him, he'd be able to get one pretty much first ball of the over. And they were happy for him to get it as well. 
And so I'd go to the other end and face these five and uh, block them out. And that's all I did, block or leave. Until he got to 100. And he got 100 and celebrated. And I shook his hand. And, and he said, thanks, Pastor. I said, no worries. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably the next over. Um, son of Jaya bowled. And I got my first runs. And Edge went through the slips and went for four fast outfields at Colombo, you know. Off it went for four. And I can't even remember how I got out. I had no idea how I got out. Absolutely no idea. But got four and then got out. And we walked off and he walked off in front, of course, and in the change room and said, thanks again. Uh, but, yeah, that, that was it. So, so I reminded him not too long ago that, listen, one of those hundreds that you got, one of those many hundreds. Yeah, it's because I stood there. <laughs> not, not, not that I'm proud of it now. Uh, if they'd been DRS, that was that. We were gone. <laughs> and, and, and do you think DRS would have come in very handy with some of the, when Zimbabwe were in the field, fourth innings, when Arjuna Ronatunga was caught at slip and everywhere and obviously was not given out? So that test match was um, particularly annoying for that. In that, and and look, I can quote it off the top of my head because I, I I remember that we set them something like three hundred and twenty nine. Yes, that's right. And and we we felt there's no ways they're going to get it, and we we had to bowl really badly for them to get it right. And overnight, at the end of day four, I think there were 120-something for five. And Ranatunga had come in late because um, his leg was sore. Um, and Aravinda De Silva and him put on this partnership that saw the game out. But um, let's just say, as you put it, there were some decisions that could have gone differently. And moan as we might have at the time, it didn't help anything. And we felt, all of us on the field, in fact, at at a drinks break at some point, we wanted to walk off the field, Um, you know, and and Alistair Campbell, I think it was him who was captain then. Yes, yes, it was. He had changed that. That's right, yes, it was. And and Alistair Campbell was like, hey, guys, if if we walk off here, what's going to happen, you know? and many of the guys are like, we can't continue like this. How are we going to get to work? It's like, we have to bowl the guys out. <laughs> and if we if we don't bowl them, then they're not going to get given out. How are we having, you know, catches at gully not being given off the spinner, you know, off the, off the glove? And you know, how's that? LBWs, you can shout as much as you want. You know, you're not getting it. And, and um, I don't know who the voice of reason was or... Or as the case may be, I think if you speak to each of the guys now, they'd have said, we probably should have walked off, you know. Uh, someone might have said, look, we should be able to create enough chances here to still win the game. Um, but as it drew closer and closer to the total, we became aware that, well, we're not, actually. And they were good batsmen in their own rights. They didn't need um, first, second, third, and fourth lives in, in order to try and get the score. And after, I remember after that game um, that Dave Houghton was banned uh, from from coming to the ground. Um, 
in the one day games because of what he said about the umpiring. And I think it was Bruce Yardley, who was coach of Sri Lanka at the time. He came into our change when he apologized for, for all the incorrect decisions, you know, for all the decisions that had gone against us. So despite them winning, yeah. here was this, um, and yeah, God rest his soul. He's passed on to Bruce Yardley. He came into our change and just said, look, sorry, boys. Uh, yeah, really sorry about that. Shouldn't have gone that way, right? Shook hands and everything, and away he went. So, yeah, and there were other unsavory incidents, actually, as the night wore on. Um, the end of that day, everyone sort of upset in the, in the change room. Um, yeah, a, a, a tour that, that many, you know, would will look back on, and yeah, it's, it's just cricket, right? And that's how I look at it. It's just cricket. Perhaps it built our character just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, as you rightly say, it is just cricket. But gosh, at the time, you know, as a team trying to establish yourselves, <laughs> yeah. you've, you've already got yeah, so many true. people, you know, thinking that you shouldn't be playing test cricket. The naysayers, as Alistair Campbell loves to, to call them. Uh, and then the last thing you want is, is to lose a test match. You don't mind losing when you're beaten fairly and squarely. But when there's dodgy umpiring now, that's, that's another thing entirely, unfortunately. But as you say... Uh, it is what it is. And then on you went to New Zealand, and that unfortunately wasn't the greatest of tours either. But there was one person who bowled very well consistently, and that man was Mpumalelo Mbangwa. And uh, especially the Zimbabwe-New Zealand A game, where unfortunately Zimbabwe, one of those tour games, didn't have a particularly good time. And you, you took quite a few wickets in that warm-up game, and many people felt that you should have been playing. But unfortunately, you predominantly played in the warm-up games. Now, that must have been one of those very frustrating times, bowling your heart out, utilizing those lovely New Zealand conditions, the humid conditions, and then not being rewarded for some very hard work. Um, in New Zealand, I think I played both of those tests, actually, right. if I remember right. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I remember the warm-up game, but not for taking wickets or anything. I just remember that we played at the House of Pain. Yes, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that. I was in Dunedin. So I, I remember that because we had to use the rugby changing changing rooms. Uh, so the Otago rugby. And and um, it was absolutely freezing. That's, that's, that's all I remember. I can't, I can't really remember much of the game. I, nothing. I, yeah, it was just, it was so, so cold. Everybody, it was everybody. Uh, in, in our side was totally uncomfortable, totally uncomfortable. Like cricket w was the last thing on our minds when it came to playing that particular game. It was it was that difficult. So yeah, I remember that. Um, and then the test matches, and if I remember right, it was a test match at the Basin Reserve at uh, Wellington. Which I did play, and I remember that. Um, I remember having a bowl against the wind. I remember uh, having to halve my run up because you couldn't run. You just get these gusts of wind that would just push you back. Um, yeah, I, I also remember that in both those test matches, we might well have lost by an innings. Yes, so yes. Uh, you just got one chance to bowl, you know, which <laughs> I think is is the bugbear of any Zimbabwean. Bola, uh, you ask Heath Streaky, he'll probably be telling you this as well. That look, if I had bowled 
You know, so if I played in games where I bowled twice, like, you know, each time, I might have many more wickets than I do, even though he's got quite a lot. Um, and then, yeah, the second game was was at um, Eden Park in Auckland. Yeah, and I remember that game, I, I remember for Matt Horn sweeping the ball, because I had to field at square leg for Adam Huckle. And as you know, Eden, Eden Park is a rugby field. Yes, yes. And so the square um, is kind of set funny. And you, if you're fielding on the boundary on the one side where there's the, where there was well, a different ground now, but where there's the big stand, um, you, you're very close to, to the batsman and you have to have your angle absolutely spot on or else if they played towards that boundary, you had no chance. And Matthew Horn played the sweep shot a lot and he got a lot of runs in that game, got through the fast, but faster bowlers and then um, had to play against the spin and he kept sweeping them. And I had a hell of a job on the boundary, diving left and right and, 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 um, hoping to be moved, you know, to somewhere else on the field after a few days. I think he got 130 or something like that, Matt Horn. So, yeah, you, and many of them would have been square on the leg side with him sweeping. Yeah, I remember that. I remember him batting. Um, I remember I remember Simon Duell absolutely swinging us out. I can't remember how many he got, but he just absolutely swung it around corners. <laughs> and everybody had a nightmare trying to face him. He was he bowled so well that game. Um, the third thing I remember about that game is that the lunches were sensational at Eden, Eden Park. Oh they were brilliant. <laughs> it was this menu and this food was incredible. So it was... It was consolation for us who were being trounced <laughs> on the park, but were being fed really well with some gourmet stuff. Oh, that is that is absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And and was there a time in your career when you actually started to realize I'm not enjoying this anymore? You know, so maybe things happening off the field, whatever your reasons were. Was it was there a time when you thought, no, I, I actually I'm not wanting to be doing this anymore. I don't like this anymore. This isn't nice. <laughs> Uh, with regard to the cricket, never, absolutely never. Whenever I was on the field and playing, absolutely loved it. Uh, whenever I was on the field and playing for Zimbabwe particularly, absolutely brilliant. Loved it. It was the best of times. Uh, there's nothing like it. I, I try and tell so many people, you know, so many young guys, mm. play as long as you can because there's absolutely nothing like it. Even when I think of times of playing for Matabiland, um, that was brilliant as well. The, the the friendships you make, the you know the camaraderie, just out in battle together um, and playing a game. It's there's not there's absolutely nothing like it. I I, I don't know. I still to this day I don't know how to describe it in, in terms of you know trying to liken it to something and kind of relate to a person who might not have played the game. So as you go through the various levels, so I think of playing school cricket. And enjoying that, I, I think of of playing club cricket and enjoying that. I think of playing provincial cricket and enjoying that. I think of uh, playing club cricket in, in in England, which is entirely different oh, yeah. because you play over there as a professional, and so there's a there's a there's something to it that makes it different. But but off the field in England and enjoying your time in a different country with different guys as you try and bond with various people. Um, you know, and you make friends, that's also different. Playing provincially in, in Zimbabwe, 
different story because also whilst you're enjoying it, there's this goal that you have. Um, if you're that way inclined, that you want to make the national team. And then when you do make the national team, there's this, I call it, there is an electricity to playing against other countries that is, you know, it's you can't replicate it. In, there's nowhere I can say, if you go and play in a game here, it's like playing, you know, Zimbabwe against South Africa or Zimbabwe against Australia or against England or against India or whoever it is. There's, to me, there's absolutely nothing like it. So, no, there's never a time that I can remember where I was on a cricket field, no matter how bad you were doing, where I thought, oh, gee, I'd really rather not be doing this. Not at all. I think it was absolutely brilliant and I absolutely loved it. There were things um, off the field in Zimbabwe cricket that occurred much later. So, around about 2003, 2004, where... Uh, it wasn't good, you know. There, there was too much going on that was off the field that would uh, get too much attention. And as soon as that happens, I think it it, it, it makes things uncomfortable for many, um, whether they're players, whether they're administrators, whatever it is. And it's I won't say the uh, the reason for moving on was because, oh, these things were uncomfortable, were difficult, whatever. But I will say this, that I, I felt it better to not have to deal with all of that stuff and not be involved in, in all of that stuff. If I were to go back and perhaps try and do it differently, I, I would wish that I could go back with a wiser head and not be as young, and then I might look at it differently and perhaps try and, and help in nav navigating that space because I think it was a new space for absolutely everything. And this is not to condone what people did and said and whatever, but I think it was a new space for everybody and nobody mature enough in that space to actually deal with it as it should have been dealt with and provide the leadership that was necessary. That is an incredibly good synopsis. I love that very much. Um, and then... I take you back to 2001, where I was in the commentary box and just beginning to, you know, sort of learn the ropes, what it's like to be a commentator. And, and this is where the fact of being blind is an absolute godsend, because, again, this was the first test match, Zimbabwe versus India in a two-test match series. And in the commentary box, once again, was one Mpomelelo Mbangwa. Now, you were just there not as a commentator, but just as a player giving thoughts and opinions, as is often the case when a player is injured or perhaps maybe a little out of form and into the commentary box he goes. So at the time, you were very reserved because obviously this is something totally new. You know, the, the, the way of commentating, you've got your director talking to you nonstop in your ear. You got There's a lot that you have to focus on. and then, But as a person who I guess maybe hears a lot more than what, sighted people would do. I thought to myself, he's reserved, he's a little nervous and a bit shy, but I'll tell you what, give this man a couple of years and he's going to go places. And I actually remember saying that to you when you always had to help me out reading my SMS messages, because in those days we didn't have talking phones that blind people, and you, you were always kind enough to read my, my text messages to me, I remember. And I remember saying to you, if you persevere at this, my friend, you're going to go a long, long way in the, in the commentary world. And you sort of smiled and laughed in your shy way as you always do, and you said, not yet, Dino, not yet. And then, after your, your cricketing career, it all started happening. Did you ever imagine that you would get to the wonderful heights 
and achieve what you've achieved through very hard work, uh, which is something that you've always prided yourself on, I know that, in terms of being in the world of, of, of commentary, from IPLs to so many tours around the world, and you know, you're know you a household name in hundreds and thousands and millions of cricket lovers' houses around the world. How special is that to you? Um, I've been incredibly privileged to, to, to be able to do this. Um, and, and the reason I, I feel I am is that, you know, you, you, not too many people can do what they love to do in some form or other. Many people have to do what they love to do as recreation and extramural. Um, the fact that I do something related to what I love doing um, as a job is a blessing, no doubt about that, and I'm grateful to God for that. Um, and as I look back, I, I look at the path and and think, wow, you know, um, so 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 often many will say, oh, you know, you carve your own path and and all of that. I don't think so. I I genuinely believe that God's hands upon me and. I don't take it for granted um, that I am blessed and protected. And I, I also feel that at the time when you and I were in the commentary box and I would be saying not yet or not really, I was just being polite in, in saying not yet. But I genuinely did not feel at that time that I would ever do this. I didn't know that. There's no way I could have known at the time. I didn't seek it as a career. I didn't look at it at the time as a career because as a player, you're single-minded and what you want to do and uh, what you're thinking of is being on the cricket field and, and play. And so to be in the commentary box is a compromising position whilst you're still a player simply because you must give opinion and appraisal um, on your fellow teammates, which is a, a difficult thing to do. And your team is the one that plays, and so you have a, an affinity to them, and you protect that camp. That's what you do. It's, it's, it's a normal position. It's a, it's a normal way. If you did it any other way, you kind of wouldn't be normal. So that that's why it was difficult. And I think that's why I was reserved. I just didn't feel there were things I, I needed to say or should have said or could say at, at that time um, because it would be in compromising the position of my teammates and slash family uh, uh, with, with regard to state secrets, as it were, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that that's why it kind of started like that. But as time went along, I uh, ended the playing career. I mean, I think it was only two years after that. In fact, two and a bit years after that, because it was after Champions Trophy 2002, where when the, 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 the World Cup squad after Champions Trophy was selected, and they selected a squad of 30, and I wasn't in it. I wasn't in the squad of 30 for the World Cup, for the 2003 World Cup. And uh, having phoned around and, and asked and sort of tried to figure out how you can be playing in Sri Lanka one day in a Champions Trophy, a couple of Champions Trophy games, 
And then the next time they pick a squad, you're not good enough to be in the 30. I sort of figured the writing was on the wall, but then had to sit then and decide, okay, what do you want to do? Uh, and being in Zim, having that, and in 2001, so I had worked quite hard in, in the in the time in between so to try and get back into the side. And my going to the Champions Trophy and getting a couple of games there was sort of me thinking, right, I've, I've got back to where I needed to get yeah, to, yeah. and I can be on my way again in, in terms of sort of launching uh, my career again. And then that blow was a, was a bit too much. And having asked and tried to figure out what it was um, and, and not getting sufficiently um, understandable and acceptable answers, I thought, right, the writing's on the wall. You know, I don't think I can do another year or two in trying to prove myself again, um, just playing for the sake of it. Uh, I shouldn't really. I, I need to look to greener pastures to something else and that's and and it was out of the blue as well i got a call to to do commentary in the cricket world cup because as you'd remember um half the tournament or part of the tournament was hosted in zimbabwe and so i got to do those games and uh, i got asked if i would do them and with all this going on in my mind, I thought, well, why not? Because all I'll be doing is watching them anyway, so I might as well watch them sort of from front row. Yeah. So I did watch them from front row and enjoyed not so much the watching of the games, but the understanding of what happened in television and then fell in love with television. And that was it. So that was the transition. And when I came back from the World Cup, when the World Cup ended, actually, I think I still played at in, to the start of 2004, or the end of 2003, I had to finish the season. I was playing for Matt Villeland then. So I finished the season, and after that, decided that's that. I think I played as player coach and decided, okay, um, that that's me done. Had a foray into coaching, so coached and didn't play. And then I coached at the academy for a little bit, helped out with um, Phil Simmons, and then there was the whole bust up, wasn't there, with all the players all gone, all gone on strike. And then the youngsters turned up. And so all the guys who were in the academy who had been sort of working with them, they, they went into test matches. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, that was a period that was, that went all wrong as far as Zim cricket is concerned. And then I got a call, uh, from Supersport. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. <laughs> So how, how, I mean, you've commentated predominantly on South Africa games, which is understandable because you work, work for Supersport. You've done a lot of neutral games as well. But then when it does come time to commentate on a game that features Zimbabwe, how easy or difficult is it for you to maintain that very neutral stance as a a commentator, because if Zimbabwe do very well and there's a chance of winning, obviously you can't really make that show in your voice. Although, I tell you what, I know some commentators who are not afraid to do that. Um, but generally speaking, you know, you don't do that. I, I mean, I've heard you being involved with Prosper Tseya when he got his hat-trick, and it was just Pomi Mbangwa doing his job as a very good commentator. Andy Bluchnot getting a hat-trick as well in a test match. Again, Pomi Mbangwa doing a job as a good commentator. But is it, I mean, do you still feel that nostalgic pang, the excitement when the team do well, the sadness when the team 
don't do as well when when you're commentating? Yeah, I don't think there are any um, neutral commentators. I genuinely don't. I, I think you have your affinity to whoever. Uh, there are some teams perhaps you might feel ambivalent towards because you have no skin in the game. But uh, generally, there's no. I don't think there's any such thing as neutrality. How can there be? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody takes a side. Every, that's how it goes. But in saying that, you have a job to do. So because you have, you have a job to do, you've got to make sure that you do your job and you do it to the best of your ability. You, you can be biased, but bias is not... Um, Bias is not cheering a side on. Bias is, I would, you know, very much enjoy it if this team won. And I like this team because X, Y, and Z. That's, that's your bias. But despite having the bias, you've got to try as hard as you can to not let the bias come through into what is your commentary, which is your job. It's not easy. But it's something that I try and work on and try and make sure that I'm I'm giving both sides of the story or as much as I can of both sides of the story as as possible with regard to the knowledge you have. And sometimes it is just a question of the knowledge you have. So if you have a scenario where a South African team plays against uh, an Indian team and I am on commentary, by virtue of the fact that I see every single South African player come through the domestic scene and then into um, the international scene, I'm going to have more information about the South African team. Yes. And there'll be more little colloquialisms and little secrets that I'll know that I, about South African players as they come up than I would about the Indian players because I haven't seen those guys come up through the ranks. So you'll say more about the one than the other. And many times it translates into bias, right? Because the guy who's listening says, well, hold on. This guy is talking more about these guys than those guys. Why? And I just put it down to the information you have. That's why when you have commentary teams put together, you have commentary teams that are mixed with people who are, to use your words, neutral, um, those who are from the one side and those who are from the other. That's, that's why you would put the teams that way, because you want to try and cover as much um, information as you can from both sides. And then what would you say would be your, your favorite game as a commentator, which involved Zimbabwe, and then your favorite game as a commentator just from a cricket lover's perspective. So regardless of whether it was South Africa beating Australia or the West Indies beating England, any game that you would have been involved in, but first of all from a Zimbabwean perspective that you've commentated on, and then we'll use neutral again, shall we? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, That's a very difficult question, actually, because there have been so many games. Um... I don't know. It's uh, what is it? It's like fifteen years of cricket. Yeah. That, as I think about it, I, I genuinely do not know. I, at the start of twenty um, twenties, I remember. I think it was the twenty twenty World Cup. It was a, a game South Africa. I mean, in South Africa in Cape Town, where uh, Zimbabwe beat Australia in 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 Cape Town. It was. I think it was the twenty twenty World Cup. It was two thousand and seven. Yeah. 
2007, yeah. And, and I had to interview uh, the players at the end. And I, I so often go back to that in, in trying to uh, remain professional and, and in trying to know what I ought to do and ought not to do. I, don't, I remember interviewing Ricky Ponting, and I can't remember if it was Hamilton who I had to interview. There was someone else. Uh, Elton Chigumbura, I think, was man of the man. Yeah, and Gary Brent. You remember you spoke to Gary Brent. I remember interviewing them, yeah. but thinking, what an idiot at the end of it all, because I was such a fan, you know. It, it was as if I was in red on that day, you know, and, <laughs> and I, no matter how much I tried to mask it, I totally failed that day, you know. So, yeah, I remember that, and that, I suppose, would go down as a favorite, but it's a favorite for two reasons, because I can think about it in my head and remember what happened and kind of see myself at, at the beginning of this journey as a, as a, 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 a want-to-be commentator and, and see that that's not how to do it. And, and also because it brought a, a warmth to my heart to see um, Zimbabwe beating Australia um, with the likes of Ricky Ponting in the lineup, who are such magnificent players. Yeah, so that obviously is something that uh, would have been very special for you. So, so uh, Pom, I mean, obviously you've done IPLs, you've done World Cups. It, it seems to me that, like me, you still have an ambition and a drive to continue with what you love so very much. Uh, you know, I mean, yes, I'm, you're a family man, so you've got your kids, your wife. I would imagine uh, the, the rigors of traveling does sometimes get to you a bit because you don't get to see as much of your kids and what they achieve, for example, at school or at home or anything like that. But there's still the love, though, isn't there? The love of traveling and, as you rightly put it, doing what we've always wanted or what we love doing, I guess, which, which is, makes it so incredibly special and what makes us so blessed. Yeah, I, I don't love the traveling at all, no. Dean. I... I um, I am such a homely person. I genuinely am, um, but I understand it is uh, a part of the job. It comes with it. I absolutely love the job. I love watching cricket matches, prepping for cricket matches, and and trying to see what it is that unfolds, and trying to um, sort of. Um, help guys enjoy seeing it un unfold, guys and girls, of course, and seeing it unfold as a game. The game's a chess when it's test matches and, and just the, the brilliant skills from the various guys um, and various players having once tried to do that myself. Um, I, I just love the game. I, I think that that's it. And it's, as I said before, it's such a privilege to be able to watch it and call it and, and enjoy it from the front lines, really. You know, that the next best thing from being right on the field is on the side and, and watching it happen live. So that's what I get to do, and I get to call it as well. And I get to watch so many kind of different cricket matches and so many different players come and go. So over the course of... Um, 15, 17 years, whatever it is that, that I've been involved in, in calling the game. It's a whole lot longer than I did um, 
play the game, you know. So, and over that course of time, it's been brilliant watching um, new guys turn up as youngsters and then become household names. You know, uh, uh, I I remember at Harare Sports Club watching Kevin Peterson score sixty against Zimbabwe. That's right. Before in two thousand four, before they 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 had that tour here in South Africa. Um, and he got booed and all the rest. And then for him to kick on and, and become this absolutely incredible player, you know. Um, um, I I remember that at that time, when I was sort of starting out with commentary, there was this difficulty because there were all these players that I had played against in the ver- various international sides, you know. So you know, what to say, how to say what you want to say about these guys who are peers, you know. So that was a period that was quite difficult. And then as newer guys came up um, trying to figure out, okay, so these guys are young guys, but pay them the respect they deserve. They're the best in as far as their skills are concerned in the various countries. Can you do your job? and still show sufficient respect for absolutely everybody who dons the whites or whatever color they they don to play to play the game for their country. So yeah, it's it's a it's a sport I love, it's a, a profession I love. I love television and telling stories. Um I, I love how a live sport plays out. There's absolutely no drama like live sport I, I don't think there is anyway and and each time you turn up to a ground you turn up um with the hope that you'll get another surprise and yeah. it hardly ever disappoints you know and and pom you have been involved in surprises 438 uh, obviously that incredible run chase by south africa at the wanderers you were still i guess establishing yourself as a commentator at supersport back in 2006 that would have been one of them two years later that incredible run chase by South Africa in Perth in the fourth innings of the first Test match when J.P. Dumini got a half century and A.B. de Villiers got man of the match with his hundred. I mean, those are things that are just that will, you know, as you rightly put it now, talking about it, telling a story about it to whoever wants to listen down the line and the way that you are able to observe from the front row. That's what makes what you do so special as well. Yeah, it's and there's so many, um, Dino. There, there, there are so many of them. You, you could rattle off a heap of games where things would happen that you'd remember, um, and sometimes where your memory gets jogged. You know, where you think, "Oh well, I'd forgotten about that." But yeah, and I guess this is why it's important for people to tell stories and maybe to even write books and write things down, because you know, with age, you tend to forget. Uh, the one thing I can't forget, though, and, and I'm constantly reminded of, is that it's you don't take this for granted. You know, there are many people who don't get to do what they love. And, and so that's why I say I'm, I'm blessed and incredibly privileged to be able to do so and to have done so for, for such a long time. We could carry on talking all day, which I certainly don't want to do to you. I have no problem with that, but I'm sure you have a lot on your plate. But just very briefly and finally, Pommy, uh, what are your thoughts on the way or do you like the way the game is going in terms of 
many T20 leagues springing up around the world. You now even have a T10 league. There's this new system of England, the the 100 that they want to get going, all being well when Corona has been dealt with. And do you like it? Do, does it take the edge off playing international cricket? Does it? Do you think that maybe because of players who now play for so many teams? Do you think that there's still the joy and the passion of representing their team when you become a bit of a mercenary, as I like to call it, playing, hopping from one country to another, playing for from one team to another? I wonder if there's still the appreciation of donning the whites when you play test cricket or indeed the colour of your country uh, when, when that time comes around. Yeah, I, I don't think it will ever be... Um diminished the 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 achievement of playing for country whether it's in a t20 game or one day international game or a test match um, which many who are and I, i hear the term used a lot purist or traditional or older i just prefer to say many who are older would look at test match cricket as what is the pinnacle for them, because that's all there was when they were there. But I also hold the view that we we do not have a monopoly and and should not um, pass judgment on what is to be enjoyed and not enjoyed. The sport is the sport, cricket in whatever form. I mean, in times past, there were three-day test matches and four-day test matches and, and five and six and timeless test matches. So however long they are they or they were, they were test matches all the same. And you had the freedom and still do to enjoy whichever format you like. And so as long as there are people out there who like the game, enjoy it, want to see it, want to play it, want to watch it, then that's great. I, I, I think it, it will go on. As far as the 2020 leagues are concerned, everybody needs money. I, I know you don't necessarily need as much as some go out to try and get, but that is the greed that is unfortunately on humanity. You know, it's, it's kind of the way people are. And the fact that money is available means that there'll be people who try and get that money. That's just the way of the world, and it's just the way things are. The 2020 leagues, I don't think, diminish international cricket. Those who make the choice that they would rather go and get the money than play for their country, it's a choice I don't think that they essentially uh, are in a position to turn down. So if we get to the bare bones of why the person makes that choice, I think you'll find um, when it comes to it, they aren't really able or don't have the luxury of making the choice of playing for country without getting as much money. As you know, being a sportsman is a short period of time. If you're lucky, it's 10 years and beyond. If you're not lucky, uh, if you're not as fortunate, then it's less than 10 years. Now, in a person's life, 10 years is not a long time at all. And if you can maximize in the time that you have, and that means you forego playing for Zimbabwe or playing for South Africa or for England or for whoever, and look, it's, it's a pity you don't get to, 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 to feel what others have felt. But if it means you're going to be okay for the rest of your life because you have sufficient money, then hey, 
it's a choice that people will make and can make, and we shouldn't judge them on that. As far as the game, as I say again, the game will go on, and we must enjoy it in whatever form it is. We must pick whatever form we prefer and enjoy that and not judge others on enjoying a different format. The very final question. Do you still class yourself as a Zimbabwean? How do you not? I don't think you ever... How do, I don't understand the question, actually, you know, because I don't think you can be what you're not. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, no matter... Absolutely. So even absolutely. if I... Uh, became South African by citizenship, let's say, right? Essentially, I'm South, I've become South African by citizenship rather than by birth. Right. But you don't ever lose or shift from where you're born. You're born Zimbabwean, you die Zimbabwean. You might be Zimbabwean and something else if you so choose, but you can't shake the who you are and what you are, whoever it is, actually. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Well, what a fantastic interview. What a wonderful man to get into the mind of and to just have a good chat. So talking, really covering pretty much everything from how he got the nickname of Pummy to just his progression as a player, some of the experiences that he had on the field. Goodness me, what would have happened if he and the team decided to boycott the test match or walk off that test when the umpiring was so appalling against Sri Lanka in 1998. That would have been one for the history books. That certainly would have been. Mpumalelo Pami Mbangwa, that was a fantastic interview. Hey, we'll be back again, or I'll certainly be back with you again pretty soon with another fantastic chat. But until then, please stay safe. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure being with you. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll be back pretty soon. Until then, take care. Goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast.